Now, this is Box to Box with Rob Gilbert and Michael Edgley. Oh, what a goal! For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. Absolutely fantastic! Hello and welcome to Box to Box, the show that is everything football. You're with Rob Gilbert and Michael Edgley to run the rule over the past week in the world game. First edition news with all the latest on the Socceroos and Matildas with Willem van Dender and shortly, and of course, our former ITN journo turned pundit Derek Dyson will be joining us throughout the show. Now, while it's been a massive week in football off the park, we're going to get started with one of the great stories on it as the men's and women's A-League seasons begin the home stretch towards the finals. And whilst the women's premiership race is still alive between the debutantes Western United, their Melbourne rivals, and of course, current ladder leaders Sydney FC, the men's title looks a lock for Melbourne City. But just like last season, where they lost the grand final, another barnstorming finish, this time by Adelaide United on an eight-game unbeaten streak, threatens to mix up the finals race to tell us how Carl Verts men have turned their season around. Their rising star, 22-year-old keeper Joe Gauci, will join us to take a look inside the locker room. Then anyone who follows football around the world will have been engrossed in a story so big that the fallout even made the front pages of some Australian newspapers. Of course, I refer to Gary Lineker, who took to Twitter to hit out at the illegal migration bill, which bans migration who arrive on small boats from settling in Britain. He tweeted, this is just an immeasurably cruel policy directed at the most vulnerable people in language that is not dissimilar to that used by Germany in the 30s. Am I out of order? He refused to back down, leading the BBC to make an announcement that he'd stepped back, but it was pretty quickly revealed it was not his choice. He'd been pulled off air, leading to fellow commentators, including Ian Wright, Alan Shearer, and amongst others, to pull out of their commitments to match of the day in protest. As we record on Monday evening, the day is dawning in the UK and peace talks appear to be breaking out. So to talk about what is being described as the Premier League's Colin Kaepernick moment, we're going to talk to our good friend from The Times, Chief Football Reader, writer Henry Winter to try and unravel the story as best we can and of course we'll find a tidbit uh, of the Women's World Cup as we uh, get closer and closer to that great event edge you, you just can't write the scripts of football can you you know there's there's always the action going on in the park but then there's always going to be some massive story and this wasn't the only one of course which uh, uh, we'll we'll touch on during the course of the show. Uh, sport and politics Rob um, my personal opinion is that I wish they didn't uh, collide but they do often than not we've spent a lot of time talking about the impact of politics on sport uh, the whole uh, FIFA World Cup Qatar lead up was dominated by um, activists, uh, you know, conflating uh, World Cup and uh, workers' rights. And now we've got Gary Lineker and the BBC in a standoff that uh, is of epic proportions. Um, if you spent some time in... Um if you spent some time in in London and the UK, you know that the uh, match of the day is a... It is as English as a kangaroo is to Australia. I tell you what, it is like absolute institution and this will be reverberating at every kitchen table there'll be a few people um choking on their uh well they'll be choking on their beers they'll be choking on their cups of tea um yeah yeah exactly jinx oh, oh, well like the bloke who should be commenting on this is derek i'm sure you're looking forward to talking to henry and asking him a few questions uh, uh yourself mate yeah, I'll be very interested to hear from Henry because he, out of all of the journalists, I think has really grabbed the torch on this. He grabbed, you know, in terms of covering the story and has been pretty prolific on his Twitter account in particular, as well as his copy in the Times of London, um, get, letting everyone know what uh, what he thinks. I mean, 
it kind of hit home for me at two points over the weekend. Firstly, my wife saying to me, completely unprompted, um, what do you think of the Gary Lineker story? And I'm, I'm sort of sort of staring back at it now. My wife's into cricket and loves sport, but there's no way she knows who Gary Lineker is, but it even permeated her world, um, which it just shows you how big this story got. Um, and then I was trying to catch up on BBC content over the weekend, wondering where my usual diet of post-match podcasts from the BBC had come from. And it took me a minute or so to realise that it wasn't just the match of the day that was affected. It was the entire BBC coverage schedule. Now, I know that a couple of commentators did live games because they saw that as providing a public service. But the whole framework around the shows, the analysis on the radio, that was all stopped as well. So. It's an enormous story that, you know, has blown out of proportion and we'll be asking Henry just how we got to this point. Well, we'll get to that point very soon, Derek and Willem. Uh, why don't you uh, lead us, uh, well, uh, am I right in assuming uh, in your editorial judgment you're going to kick us off with that? Well, I was going to kick us off with that, Rob, but I think you've laid it out beautifully. I think Derek's had a uh, an important say, and I think Henry Winter is probably going to be a little bit more uh, forthcoming with some insight than myself. So I might leave the Lineker story there for now and start with something a little bit more within my wheelhouse, and that is the young Socceroos who have crashed out of the Under-20 Asian Cup quarterfinals. Uh, they went out to host Uzbekistan on penalties. Trevor Morgan's side took the lead on 74 minutes, but conceded almost immediately. Now let's take a listen to how it was called by Teo Palazzeri. Triantis is header! It's there! Popovic scores! The young Socceroos in front! And 34,000 Uzbeks fall silent! They had the better of the chances from there in extra time. Ultimately, Adrian Segacic's penalty was the difference. So, Michael, it means they've missed this year's Under-20 World Cup in Indonesia. Uh, had they have won that game, they would have been through. That's now a tournament that we haven't reached since 2013, which was the Irvine, McLaren, Taggart, Curtis, good vintage. But... While it's a shame and while it is important that cycle on cycle we qualify for these tournaments, I think if you saw any of the football in the uh, or any of the football they played, you'd be proud to see your junior national teams playing like that. Ball on the ground, good intent to get forward. They beat Qatar 9-1 when they needed to. Uh, in the end, it was the uh, the 1-0 opening loss to Vietnam that's cost them. Yeah, that was one, wasn't it, Willem? That cost them dearly because they got a more difficult opponent in this knockout uh, game. But look, um, as someone who uh, circulates in these sort of... Um, environments a lot um, we shouldn't underestimate the quality of uh, all Asian football uh, at the underage level and they are breaching the gap you know they are catching up to Australia and uh, you know the fact that we haven't qualified at the under 20 in the men's competition since 2013 is uh, an indication of what we need to do to get our development right and Ernie Merrick um, and his team of people um, they've got a big job to do to try and uh, get our underage men's program at least uh, back on track and qualifying for these World Cups because they are huge development opportunities, the FIFA World Cups at the underage levels. And well done to Uzbekistan, who won their home patch, uh, got over the top of us. And we were a bit unlucky. Uh, even the independent observers say that, but uh, that's football. And uh, Rob, is the expectation that these underage teams in the men's, the 17s and 20s and the 23s qualify for these um, big tournaments, uh, FIFA World Cups and Olympic Games, or do you think 
that uh, it's reasonable that we, from time to time, don't. Yeah, look, Edge, I, th- I think uh, desire and expectation are obviously two different things. We, re- we desperately want to qualify for all of these big tournaments. But I was listening to the show last week when you were talking about um, the the, um, the tie um, match that you went to. And, and one thing that struck me um, in a point that you made was uh, uh, the, not only the quality of, of play being um, a level up from the A-League, but also the income that players earn. So if that's happening in Thailand, then it just follows on that uh, if we can't compete from a commercial level in getting the best players here, then how are our best uh, juniors going to uh, improve by playing uh, amongst uh, you know another level down? So uh, you asked the question about expectation. I think uh, we, we desperately want them to, to play, but we, we do well in in both uh, the women's and the men's the 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 girls and the boys so occasionally missing out i don't think uh, is such a bad thing as disappointing as it is it's obviously hit and miss i think when we you know we can we can understand why we don't get there because the competition is so good but a couple of recent examples show how beneficial it is i just mentioned the uh, the 2013 group who have since gone on to be senior world cup socceroos and even the 2020 it was the 2020 olympics played in 2021 graham arnold took a group there, and then he took, well, my maths off the top of my head, probably seven or eight guys to the Senior World Cup just a year on. And I'll ask you actually a little later on uh, about sort of what it means to go away with a group of, of young Australians and have that experience early in your career uh, to then flow into senior football. But we will leave that aside uh, for now. PSG's Champions League exit reportedly has them in the sights of the APL for May's A-League All-Stars clash. Uh, despite mass scepticism, certainly from myself and this program at the time, last year's revived edition was pretty good against Barcelona. Uh, this year, it's again going to be in Sydney as part of their Festival of Football. Uh, Rob, the APL reportedly had a, a crack at Bayern Munich. That was all but agreed, except for the fact that they've now advanced in the Champions League. Uh, so it's off. I guess the marketability of this clash hinges on the future of that sort of PSG front line, uh, having once again bombed out of the Champions League. But I remember last year, we, we had a bit of fun with that A-League All-Stars concept. Didn't really look forward to it, but then enjoyed it thoroughly. No, no, we did. And um, and if their commercial uh, owners uh, um, are, are any indication, then then why wouldn't they? The, the Qatar Airlines uh, and the nation itself um, advertise uh, as, as much as any international airline in Australia. So... Uh, uh, if they're going to bring up their, you know, their sort of travelling billboard, and uh, and they're not doing anything else, Derek, I would have thought that uh, it makes perfect sense that um, you know the the players uh, pretty much do what they're told. Um, some of them uh, uh, read Cristiano Ronaldo uh, when he chose not to come out at the beginning of uh, uh, the the Premier League season for Manchester United. We all saw how that ended. Um, it, it seems like a, a realistic ask. Yeah, well, I think this is the perfect use for this squad of PSG that uh, has been assembled. It's a kind of Harlem Globetrotters type team, isn't it? So it's perfect for these kind of um, not very not very important but high profile um, pre- prestige matches. And yeah, um, I suppose it will will be interesting to see, as you said, who gets on the plane. Apparently Messi is still going to sign his new deal. Um, but there was a lot of talk about the breakup of this project, that the fact that despite assembling, you know, the greatest sort of forward line uh, in the world that it that it can't even get out of last 16 of Champions League. Is it time to rip up and, and start again? So, um, 
yeah, it'll be interesting to see if it is PSG and, and, and who they bring, Rob. We've covered Graham Potter's travails in depth, so I might as well give him his plaudits when they're due. He's had his best week as Chelsea boss. They overturned a first league deficit to defeat Borussia Dortmund and moved to the Champions League quarterfinals. They then backed that up with a league win against Leicester. Also through the last eight at this point are Benfica and AC Milan. The final... Uh, the final 16 legs uh, to be played uh, this week. Michael, we know on this panel we have one of sports' great optimists, so you'd think Liverpool taking a three-goal deficit to the Bernabeu is nothing uh, but a cracking opportunity for some history. That's right. Nothing but a cracking opportunity for some history for Liverpool, but I want to go back a bit, Willem. What about Paris Saint-Germain, PSG? See you later, brother. Yeah, well, no, we covered that. Their, uh, their punishment is they're going to be shipped all the way out to, uh, out to Sydney for a festival of football. I mean... What is the uh, on the scale of zero to ten, Derek? Um, PSG's Champions League campaigns. I mean, is it bad luck, or is it bad planning, uh, or is it just stupidity that they cannot seem to get it right in every campaign they've made? Really, really good question. I'll try and uh, there's a, there's a few bits to it. I, I think firstly, yeah, just the the um. Look, the level of difficulty of winning the Champions League is really hard. You know, Pep Guardiola has not managed to do it at Manchester City, despite an equal um, embarrassments of riches and arguably a much more coherent and logical um, squad. So, so look, to put it right, it's a, t- it's a tough tournament to win. PSG have actually managed to get all the way to the final and have, have fallen short there. But of course, the general, the general theme is that they fall out at these early stages. I think you could probably throw in a little bit of what they're doing when they're not in the Champions League and they're at Orléans and they're at Reim and they're at wherever, you know, not not at the, the, the you know, the rigour of the Premier League or Serie A or, or Bundesliga or wherever you might be. And then, of course, yeah, just these this lopsided team of attacking players that they've created. There's, you know, they don't have an identity like um, some of the other European teams and they don't like have Like Bayern Munich, for example, who rolled them. I mean... Bayern hadn't yeah. been in, I mean, I know they're doing well in the league, but, you know, they, they'd been struggling a little bit um, uh, for form. A lot of the pundits said they weren't, mm. they're not the Bayern Munich of old, but they just roll right over the top of them, like without any problems at all. Yeah, well, and, and also look at who was in that um, Bayern Munich team as well, Chupamoting. Moting. Um, I know a lot of us joke about his time at um, Stoke, but he seems to um, uh, play in, in, and score in really big games, and he scored in this game, and he was cast aside um, by PSG and the uh, the other Bayern Munich player from France who, uh, name escapes me, I'm just sort of stalling for time here. Who is it, guys? The um, other very good French Bayern Munich player. <laughs> oh my anyone, God, anyone, can anyone help me here? Midfielder. Um, he is called... Kingsley Coman, that's right. One of my favourites, yeah, Kingsley. yeah. Streets of Paris. He's on the streets of Paris. And again, he was in the youth system, cast aside. And these are the sort of players now. So, yeah, a lot of rot there. And uh, I think we can all enjoy laughing at PSG. 
Yep, well said, and um, and I, I'm amazed that Edge didn't take that sort of uh, little uh, um, easy one outside off stump to have a crack at Liverpool, who were clearly resting against Bournemouth on the weekend after destroying Manchester United ahead of uh, their uh, what will be history-making comeback against uh, Real Madrid. So, Willem, uh, you did predict that I would be the eternal optimist, and that's exactly what I'm going to be for the 48 hours that I have the opportunity to continue to do so. Socceroos and Matilda Central for the Green and Gold Army. Very quickly, Aaron Moy has been unfortunate not to play at an Asian Cup, but it could be third time lucky uh, this time next year should his Celtic renaissance continue. Belting goal to open the scoring in their 3-1 win over Hearts in the Scottish Cup quarterfinal. So Ange's boys into the last four. In Germany, Jackson Irvine and Connor Metcalf both started for St. Pauli in their seventh straight win. Uh, they are up to seventh. And happy days for Matty Ryan with Alkmaar as well. Uh, two clean sheets in the league. Have them uh, putting the pressure on the top two and they're also right in the mix to go through in the Europa Conference League, so the third-tier European League there. Uh, and for our Matildas, Michael Sam Kerr with the game's only goal uh, sees Chelsea defeat Man United and return to the top of the table, and United, not Arsenal, are their nearest competition this season. So that's a big result. And earlier in the week, United defeated Leicester 5-1, uh, but the consolation goal would have meant the world to Remy Seamson, uh, her first for the club. Uh, but the box-to-box magic, not enough for Mackenzie Arnold as West Ham uh, went down to Villa. They certainly did. And uh, Emma Hayes, uh, really interesting comments. She said, listen, she should have had a hat-trick, to be fair. I'll say that because that's how good she is. Um, she just scores goals for fun for Chelsea, Sam Kerr. We just uh, seem to mention her every weekend, don't we? We do. And uh, well, my, actually, I've got her penciled in for one of uh, my little nominations in stoppage time. So she's going to get a run uh, at the, in the middle of the week and she'll keep getting a run throughout the next several months and hopefully right through to the point where she kicks the, the winner in the World Cup final later on in the year. All right, boys. Uh, well done, Willem, as always. Okay, after the break, we'll... Uh, Derek and I are going to take a spot on the on the bench uh, for the next segment, Edge, while you and Willem have a chat to Joe Gauci. He he's really looks to me, 22-year-old, six-foot-four goalkeeper, uh, uh, really uh, making a big impact at Adelaide United in this uh, eight-game uh, unbeaten streak of theirs. Uh, he'll uh, he'll be fascinating, you know, rising starter to chat to. So stick around, Willem and Edge will talk to Joe Gauci from Adelaide United after the break on Box to Box. Willa, willa, willa. Everybody's going to buy points, fights, yes, Willem. I've got to hand it to you, mate. Didn't you absolutely smash the live reads out of the park last week? I thought I could sit on the bench this week and just leave it back to you. You were talking about summer changing to autumn, being a great time for the adventurers to dip into their spice jars, Willem. Learned from the best in terms of reading out the reads, Rob. Didn't learn from the best in terms of how to cook, and that's why I need Hoyts like you wouldn't believe, and that's why my cupboard is full of them. See, exactly. He does the segue. And Edge, uh, you're still there for a few more weeks before you get back home. Uh, you really must be uh, like a local just about, you, you know. I'm, I'm almost sort of expecting you to, to sort of uh, ride in in your tuk-tuk and, uh, and do the show on the, the back of it as you weave your way through the Bangkok traffic. Yeah, I've got a tuk-tuk rob on my... Um, Look at that. Yeah, I've got a tuk-tuk there on my key ring for my apartment here <laughs> in Bangkok. But, but I, I've got to say, uh, I can't find any Hoyt spices here, but I'll tell you who has found some Hoyt herbs and spices. Is Paige Zoyce from Melbourne Victory, who's a midfielder who had to fill in in the right back for uh, Jessica Nash, who'd been away in Kyrgyzstan playing for the uh, young Matildas in their Asian Cup qualifiers. Um, Paige Zoyce, she had so many herbs, herbs and spices, she scored a thunderbolt. Exactly, and I know for anyone who's wondering, Edge can take a tangent as to why he was taking that tangent to the Melbourne victory in Page Voice. He didn't mention that Melina Rez set that goal up, by the way, which she did, um, being the manager, but Hoyts are a sponsor of Melbourne victory, and they have been since day one. So, uh, Edge, lovely little note there. And, uh, Not and- only that. 
Not only that, Rob, Isabel Ocado, who's part of the Hoyt Surf and Spices family, she signed a full professional contract with Melbourne City during the week because she made so many appearances and she got onto the field for Melbourne City as well in the big derby that happened earlier today as they're recording. So uh, well done to Isabella. Um, but oh, we just had to mention Paige Lewis because it was a worldie with them, wasn't it? Hashtag yeah. boom. Absolutely. All right. Well, on that note, uh, Derek, uh, I'm not going to even ask you what you're cooking this week because uh, you'll be uh, you'll be um, probably getting a bit of takeaway from the Hillsville Sanctuary um, as uh, baby uh, um, baby Dyson arrives in the in the not too far distant future. Uh, yeah. No. Um, we are piling up the food. The fridge, the freezer, sorry, is full of frozen dishes, and I, would, and I made one today, and it was my standard curry and the uh, the three amigos from points mm-hmm. with the cumin, the garum masala, uh, and the turmeric. You can't go wrong. You didn't stick a bay leaf in there? I don't think you cook anything without a bay leaf, Derek. Yeah, no, true. I think there was a, a, bay, a, bay, leaf, a bay leaf in there too, Rob. So <laughs> um, another, 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 we'll be enjoying that in a few weeks' time when we're in Babyland. <laughs> Beautiful, mate. Good luck. We can't wait to hear the good news. All right, Johnny Accardo, our good friend and all the family at Hoyts. Uh, if that wasn't the world's longest live read, I don't know what was. <laughs> Make sure you get down to Coles, Woolworths, all your good independent supermarkets. Empty spice jars, well, they need to be filled with Hoyts and do it. You'll be happy with Hoyts. Box to box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. They've long been one of the A-League's most entertaining sides and Adelaide United have stepped it up in the past fortnight, scoring eight goals in two games to emerge as the clear challenges to Melbourne City for silverware this season. While the goals are nice, they don't mean anything unless you can keep it tight at the back. And the man who's been doing that for the better part of two years is goalkeeper Joe Gauchy. Joe, welcome to Box to Box. Thank you, mate. Thanks for having me. Uh, you finished fourth last year and made the semi-finals. Carl has been there for, for a little while and you've always been around the mark. You've always had the uh, the foundations in place. But does it feel over the past six weeks or so that you've uh, you've gone up a level or two? From Certainly from the outset, uh, it, it appears to be the case. Yeah, no, I think the, the results have been clear that um, I think the results have been consistent I think is probably the, the best way to put it um, I think all year we've shown real glimpses of um, being a top side but probably just a little bit of inconsistency with results, dropping points um, in, in games where we probably should have you know, come away with three, um, definitely would have you know, put us even in, a, in an even better position than where we are now but I think over the last sort of two months um, we've sort of picked it up and Really started to get some some consistent, you know, back to back wins, and um, you know, I think we're undefeated now in in eight or nine games. So I think that's really important. And you know, the longer that run goes, the the more confidence the the players and the and the squad start start to get. So. Yeah, I think it, it, it's been a, it's been a really good run, and, and hopefully that can continue this weekend. And on your own form and development, uh, as I said, you've been the primary keeper at Adelaide for almost two, two full seasons now, uh, and you've seen off some pretty good competition in that time as well. Uh, you, you're 22. You've had some international recognition in the past 12 months as well, which we'll ask you about shortly. But do you feel you've settled at the level and established yourself, or is it still very much about uh, continuing to uh, to keep the push? Because as, as I say, James Dalyanov has some has some wraps on him, uh, and has played some good senior football as well. So yeah, how do you? feel at the level at the minute? I feel like I've started to settle. Um, I think for me coming into this season, it was all about uh, starting the year, the, the previous two years at the at the club. Um, I had stints of playing. Uh, the first year, it was, it was 10 games and then I picked up an injury and uh, last year, um, I was able to see out the to the end of the season 
Um, so for me, coming into preseason, it was just all about can I start the year um, and start the year as number one and sort of continue where I left off. Um, that was my biggest thing. And when I was able to do that, it was then just about consistency, which I think I'm slowly finding. I think I'm still, um, you know, making mistakes and learning learning every week, which I think is good as, you know, as any young player, any player really that, you know, you, you play, you're never going to play the perfect game and you're going to learn from, from those mistakes. So that's what's really important to me. And, you know, I'm forever grateful for the, the opportunity that I've been given at Adelaide to play and, and to develop. And I think over the past, yeah, it's been... Uh, been sort of one and one and a half season, probably one full season, coming up to two. Um, you know, I've, I've been, I guess, the number one, and um, I feel really comfortable in that. But um, I'm still feel like every week I'm learning and developing. I don't feel like, you know, it's a it's a breeze for me. Um, which I think is good. It's a, it's a challenge every week coming up against some fantastic players. Joe, I want to ask you about your captain, um, Craig Goodwin. He proved to all Australian football fans with his two goals at the FIFA World Cup, just what his quality is. I think people uh, close to the A-League know how good he is. But he's just been immense for you this season and uh, just highlighted again on the weekend with two goals and two assists. Can you um, tell our listeners what he's like um, off the field, um, at training, um, and just how big his influence at the club is? Um, Things that... Uh, the regular fan doesn't see. I mean, just what are your comments about Craig, how he prepares himself and just his season to date? Yeah, I think you know, Craig's, Craig's a fantastic player. Um, everyone can, you know, sees his quality every week and what he brings to the team. Um, off the field, he's a, he's a he's still a real competitor. You know, whenever we're travelling, we're playing, you know, card games or anything like that. He always wants to win. Uh, I think that competitive side is something that just translates to everything. Um, but he wants to, you know, he always wants to lead by example. Um, I'm not sure if you saw his interview post game, and, and he talks about that. And uh, that, that's that's true. You know, that, that that rings true. That he he leads by example. He um, you know sets a standard in training and is really trying to drive the standard um, for not only the younger players but also the the senior players as well. Um, and you know, the that sort of captain role is something that he's he's continuing to go into um, and. Yeah, I mean, everyone's seeing the the results of it, of, of him driving the standard. I think him driving it in, in training for everyone else also lifts himself, you know, keeps him accountable that he has to, you know, maintain maintain that level. And um, he's been he's been fantastic this year. And, um, you know, he's really just taken it up a level from, from last year and, and, and on the weekend against Newcastle. He was, he was superb. I want to ask about your super sub. Um, we can't talk to anyone about Adelaide without um, Nestori Irukunda's names coming up. Um, he has been a, a revelation. Uh, the A-League football community is uh, a light. Everybody's talking about him. Um, what's he like at training? Um, you obviously uh, would have to uh, fend off a few of his shots, but um, he's just scoring for fun at the moment, coming off the bench. Can you tell us about Nestori, he's, um, what he's like, and because all Australian and Adelaide fans are so excited about uh, what they're seeing now, but also the potential. Yeah, no, he's, Nestor's such an exciting player, um, and, he, and he's a great kid. I mean, off the field, he's, he's just like any other you know, 17-year-old boy at the end of the day. Um, I think uh, of late, he's been... He's been. I mean, he's always been scoring great goals ever since he's you know he stepped foot. Haley, he's been scoring fantastic goals. Um, but over the last couple of weeks, he's he's, he's probably taken up a level. Um, and I think you know Australian football fans and media have, have set a pretty high ceiling for him. But 
think you've got to remember at the end of the day, she's just a 17-year-old kid that just loves playing football, loves scoring goals, loves celebrating with his, with his flips. Um, you know, he's just an exciting player and he has he has a lot of confidence and knows what he can do. And I think that's, that's why he's been so successful so far. I think he goes out and really has no fear and is going to express themselves. And, um, you know, the coaches know that. The coaches know what they're going to get and know that he has no, he has no fear at running at players and, you know, taking shots from, you know, angles that maybe other young wingers wouldn't be confident to. He has the he has the technical ability and, and most definitely has the power to to, to score from, from very tight angles or from ranges. He showed sense victory uh, the other week. So, no, he's a... He's a good kid. He's learning. He's, um, I think, you know, you, you look at the goals, you take away the goals rather, and you look at the other as- aspects of his game in terms of his work rate, tracking back and what he's doing without the ball. That's been probably his biggest improvement, I think, over over the season and over the last couple of months. Um, he's starting to play more of a, you know, the, on the weekend he played more minutes off the bench and um, he had to, you know, do more probably without the ball, um, which is which is really important when it comes to that, that sort of team aspect of, um, of the structure that we want to play, so no, he's he's fantastic, and in training, it's um, yeah, it's a real challenge to stop them, especially when he's he's putting all his power behind it from 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 nearly anywhere within the box. It's a it's a real challenge, but um, no, it's a it's a good one. I, I always you know, give him a little bit of banter when I can save one because there's not many people that can. Certainly. We're all loving his journey and your own, Joe. But um, I, my last question before I hand back to Willem, I just want to ask about Carl Viet. We, his coaching reputation is growing by the week. Um, we all know that he's Adelaide through and through. People of my generation uh, remember he was a wonderful professional career in the, in the NSL. Um, but what are some of the qualities that we outside of the club might not notice. Can you just give us a little bit of insight into your coach and how um, how he's going? Because he's he's doing such a wonderful job with um, the development of um, that team, in particular some of the young, younger players. You guys are now a, a development factory. But um, can you just tell us a little bit about Carl and uh, some of the qualities that we might not notice from outside the club? Yeah, no. Look, I think everyone that watches the games can see he's extremely passionate on the on the sideline. Um, you know, you can quite often, you know, hear him through the through the, the mics on the side, you know, maybe having a go at players or really getting behind them or praising them when they do something good. Um, he's extremely, extremely passionate and expresses that on game day, but throughout the week he's he's very calm. Um, you know, he is great at I think managing the players has has been a real big thing. Knows all the players and, and what works for them and what doesn't in terms of a style of coaching. Um, I think from managing the, the more senior players we have in the group to, to managing the younger boys that, that are coming through, um, I think that's probably where most of the focus has been because of you know the, the young players that have been coming through and I've had success over the last couple of seasons. But his management of the whole squad um, is fantastic and um, you know throughout the week he's, he's very, very calm and just has a, a real calm demeanour. Um, and I think uh, some people probably wouldn't expect that um, because on the you know game day he's extremely passionate and um, you can you can see it and hear it. So I think his, his man management is is fantastic and has probably been the best that that I've worked under um, you know, from other clubs. And um, you know I've worked with Carl since I was fifteen was the first time through the through the state teams here in South Australia and um, you know he's, he's he's been like that for. A while, um, you know, and, and he, the relationship he has with all of our, our us younger players 
that have sort of come through that development system. Um, you know, you sort of see now our journey and our pathway. So he knows a lot of the local, you know, young young boys extremely well. And I think that that that's a, probably builds the relationships um, and makes it easy for um, young young players coming in and stepping into the first team because they've had this relationship with Carl in the past. Um, and he, you know, understands the journey that they've been through. So um, no, it's probably just a little bit of an insight. Um, but yeah. No, it's fantastic insight, Joe. Thank you for that. I just want to take you back before we let you go uh, to mid last year. Five games for the Australian under-23s at the Asian Cup. Nearly a successful tournament for the boys that just fell short uh, at the end. But what did it mean to you to be recognised and, and brought into the national team fold, uh, particularly at a time when our senior, or there will be some senior goalkeeping spots opening up uh, within the next two to three years, you'd think? Yeah, uh, it was an unbelievable experience going over to Uzbekistan with the 23s. It was... Um, you know, a real eye-opener for me. It was my first ever, um, you know, national team repre- representation, my first ever international tournament. Um, and it was it was amazing sort of to, you know, there was, a, there was, I think there was about five of us that went from Adelaide, but just being able to, you know, play with boys that you play against, you know, in the A-League and also build these relationships with Australian footballers from all over the world, I thought was um, something amazing that I took from it. Um, and it's, quite surreal how, you know, how we can get a bunch of Aussies together that, you know, some have met each other, but, you know, quite a few hadn't. And over the course of a couple of weeks, you kind of build this bond and this chemistry on the pitch um, that we were able to have some, you know, some some pretty good success with. Um, but no, it was it was a real honour to, you know, to play the majority of games there and I guess be, you know, handed the number one shirt. Um, it was fantastic experience and exposure and, and I wanted to, you know, travel overseas to a completely different country with a different culture and, and play football is something that, um, you know, I think that you could only really dream of, of being able to experience these things because of football. And um, it was a real eye-opener to the, to the places that football can take you. So, you know, it was a, it was a really great experience and, and hopefully um, I can experience some of that again in the future. And Trevor Morgan, perhaps not as outwardly passionate on match day as, as Carl Veard on the touchline, but obviously highly respected and he's given his life to Australian youth development. So how was it to work under Trevor? Yeah, it was fantastic. Um, you know, he put a lot of confidence in, our, in us boys and, and especially myself. I felt, um, you know, I could go out there on the pitch and, and do what I do best. And, you know, he sort of just gave everyone confidence, I felt. Um, you know, he didn't feel like he tried to change too much of our games individually but was trying to um, I guess build a system that you know works for everyone um, and and just I guess tapped into the the best qualities of the players that he had at his disposal so you know going out and playing under Trevor I got extreme confidence that I was just able to go out and express myself and um, play the way I play football and um, yeah I think it, it worked really well and um, you know the, the we had a few changes from week to week uh, or game to game rather um, and you know, I think the the system that he put together was 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 fairly good, and we had we had good success there, and we were probably just a little bit unlucky not to not to go all the way. Well, Joe, really appreciative of your time. I'm sure it won't be too long before we see you in uh, national colours again, perhaps at a at an even more uh, senior level. But in the meantime, all the best against Wellington on Friday night, and uh, with the Reds for the rest of the campaign. Thanks, Garth. Thanks for having me. Adelaide goalkeeper Joe Gauchy there. Stick around on the other side of the break. Robin Derrick will be back with Henry Winter. Jeez, that jingle. You know what it is when you hear it. 
It's Chemist Warehouse, of course. Stock up and save right now at Chemist Warehouse. Willem, there is INC plant-based amino blend mango kiwi fruit, 300 grams, 31.49. That's a deal, isn't it? That's a bargain. Absolutely. And Bondi Protein Co. Vegan and Keto, one kilo range, 37.99 for a kilo. Also pretty good. I know. Can't that, Rob? Did you say that again? I know. Bondi Protein Co. Vegan and Keto, one kilogram for $37.99. Amazing stuff. And Edge, when you give me a headache doing the show together, I get the Panadol Fast Rapid Pain Relief, 40 caplets for $8.49. Jeez, I run out of those quick when we're having a chat. I need some of them over here, Rob. It's a bit hot and sticky. Mm, it's dehydrated. Yeah. Would, uh, you know, as I scull some water, I think I need one of those, just a bit of rapid pain relief. And you might need, after you eat all that garlic and spices and chilli, the Listerine Fresh Burst, or zero alcohol. Oh, oh yeah, one litre mouthwash, $10.99. One litre? Amazing prices. And uh, and Derek, uh, I know you know full well that Melbourne is the, the hay fever capital of the world, so you obviously need the Rhino Court Hay Fever and Allergy Original 240 doses, $29.99. Yeah, I'm a big, a big allergies man, Rob. So I have them in the UK, and I can tell you that I do have them over here as well. So do you cut uh, the grass out at the Hillsville Sanctuary, Derek? I cut, I cut my own grass, which is quite near <laughs> the uh, the Hillsville Sanctuary, and yeah, I do, I do, I do need my antihistamine. So I'll be down there getting a big stockpile of that, Rob. Well done, Derek. All right, boys, give us warehouse the great savings. Of course, they are every single day. Box to box. The Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Yes, this is Box to Box. Now, really enjoyed that chat with young Joe Gauchy, rising star keeper. Uh, we'll be seeing him in the green and gold of the senior side in, in years to come. And uh, and obviously, uh, that whilst that story is, a, is a, 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 an interesting one from an A-League point of view locally, the, the big story around the world is uh, the story of the fallout of the Gary Lineker, well, let's call it Tweetgate. Um, I know that uh, our next guest, Henry, went to, referred to it as that. But before I, I welcome Henry on, I just want to preface... Uh, uh, Henry's uh, uh, opening remarks with with a tweet, uh, a double barrel tweet, even that uh, that he put out uh, off the back of this. That uh, Gary Lineker has brought more pride and joy to this country than most politicians and the BBC hierarchy, if not all. He has a conscience and a platform. He does not present a news program on the BBC. Is not a full time employee. Did not express his view on his BBC show. I don't agree with the imagery he used, but I absolutely defend his right to express those views. He spoke out in Qatar on the BBC tweet. Gates says more about BBC paranoia in a time of charter renewal and residual snobbery in some quarters about sports people daring to have opinions. And on that note, Henry, I welcome you back to the show. Um, your opinions, uh, well, you, you, you um, always deliver them with uh, the force of your passion, mate. How are you? I'm very good. Thanks for having me back on. I think the last time we spoke, the, the, um, it was at the World Cup. It was. Quite a- Quite appropriate because Gary Lineker started BBC's coverage of that, clearly mm. uh, encouraged to do so by his uh, BBC bosses with a quite a, quite a very strong and very accurate appraisal of how football had got to Qatar, the the allegations of corruption, the issues with migrant workers, and you could actually say it was a it was almost a sort of political just speech in a way. So uh, I think the BBC, at the very least, is guilty of inconsistency. And uh, a little hypocrisy given some of the uh, the goings-on in, in management um, at the corporation as well. It's it's hard to, to fashion that what 
is good for the goose is not necessarily good for the gander right now. Yeah, it's a good point. I mean, I'm not hugely into politics. I mean, I, there were two winters in the gunpowder plot and, you know, I don't necessarily think such extreme measures um, of, uh, you know, where Guy Fawkes and all that lot tried to uh, have a go at Parliament. I don't think that sort of form of direct action is, is of, you know, it's, it's clearly wrong. But I just think that there is an inconsistency here. There are concerns at the top of the BBC and its relationship with government. But also I think it's a broader issue than that. You know, like you, we're, we're an intelligent, grown-up country. People should be allowed to air their views, particularly if you're... It's very patronising to think the sports presenter shouldn't have views. Also, that he's expressed them on a, on a private channel. I, I didn't agree with the, uh, the, the language, but he's got every right to express that. Um, he wasn't doing it in the guise of the BBC. I mean, Gary Lineker, as you know, is so well known in the UK and around the world that he's almost, it can't be bigger than the BBC because the BBC is huge. But when people associate him, they don't immediately think of the BBC. They think of the goals in the World Cup. They think of, obviously, his footballing career. He works for other broadcasters. He's probably as, as well known, almost as well known, for, for, for selling crisps. So... He's not a news reporter. If it was the journalist who presented the 10 o'clock news, then went and tweeted that sort of thing, then, then there would be an issue. But I just think we need to be a little bit more grown up and mature. And But look, it's a window on the strange country that we're in at, at, at the moment with a government that seems, from an outsider like me looking in, is is already fighting the next election, election and know it's got problems to convince a lot of people. Henry, for our listeners that don't really understand the institution that is Match of the Day, uh, a quaint show that summarises in an hour um, football highlights, uh, um, the football that most people haven't been to watch. Um, he just summarised the institution, why Match of the Day is so important, um, and then also what it was like on Saturday when uh, people were just tuning in to watch literally the highlights. I think Match of the Day, which goes out at sort of after 10 o'clock on a, on a Saturday evening, is about as much an English institution as rain. I mean, it's part of our lives. It's been going since, what, 1964? The crazy thing is, is that in the, in the world of illegal streaming platforms, Twitter, people sort of relaying... Um, footage on video. Also, Sky put out highlights within about an hour, an hour and a half after the game. So you could have a sort of two-minute uh, highlights package. And then five hours later, dear old auntie, who we affectionately call the BBC, they they weighed in. But, you know, the viewing figures are good because of Lineker, because of Ian Wright, Alan Shearer, former players of, of their repute, who spend all afternoon watching the game, analysing. Um, I mean, for a layman like me, a football fan, but a layman like me, I'll, I'm always educated watching it. Ian Wright will do something on how Marcus Rashford's attacking has developed. You know, can he play more through the centre or is he best coming in off the left? Then you have Dion Dublin and Alan Shearer who give who also can talk about uh, you know the, the attacking strength. Shearer is very good on the tactical breakdown of how how an attacker can work. Just analyse. And Danny Murphy, a former Liverpool player, former England player, is very good at that sort of analysis as well. So you sit there on a on a Saturday night, and it is so they, oh, they've obviously got the rights, and they show the highlights, but it's the analysis. And it was quite interesting the other night when, as as you say, what that program, the twenty minutes without the the music, which is like a sort of theme tune to to many of our lives. Um, without that, without the commentary, because of the solidarity of the BBC commentators and other staff, 
they did, there was there was no commentary. I mean, it was it's such an own goal by the BBC. If they thought that this they were going to isolate Gary Lineker, they took on whole sports department. And of course, sports department. You know, you work in sports. You know, they're they're teams and they stick together. Um, so it was a twenty minute program with no commentary, no interviews, uh, just the highlights. And everyone said, well, you know, people were pointing out that the viewing figures had actually gone up by half a million people. It's normally around three million people, but actually, it was because it was the curiosity value. So, uh, yeah, it was uh, it was a, it was an interesting evening. But you know, you need that analysis. You need Gary Lineker back there. People talk about his salary, which I think is about one point three million pounds. I'm not sure what that exchange rate is with you guys. The pounds so rubbish at the moment, um, but it's a few tinnies. But you just get he will sort of talk, but he would he would earn double that money elsewhere. Yeah, and you you mentioned the the uh, the solidarity <laughs> of the uh, the BBC team, and of course, as you said, that you know, precipitated that Wright and Shearer, the two present the, the two kind of pundits, were um, ruling themselves out. Then basically, everyone who's ever worked for the BBC was ruling themselves out. Probably Henry, you were maybe getting over chores to come on yourself at one point, but as someone that works for another great institution like the Times of London, I mean, as a member of the press pack and in that wider football broadcast or coverage world, like what has the press pack thought of it and how, how have you reacted to that solidarity? Well, I've enjoyed the solidarity. I think it's what the media, you know, there is a, an element of honour amongst thieves, you know, even though as sort of journalists, you, you know, you're chasing a, a story, but actually, and there is huge rivalry. There is also huge respect for what um, everyone does. Also, we're very aware, simply as journalists, that we're very fortunate to work in a world like football. So, and it's, I mean, every newspaper, and I've been working in newspapers since 85, 86, sports desk is known as the toy department because we're all the one having fun. It's the, where the noise is. We're going out to matches and then going to the pub afterwards. And it is, so we're, we're very aware of that. So there is actually that, there's rivalry and solidarity. And certainly there has been at the BBC, like Mark Chapman is a fantastic presenter. He immediately made it clear that he wasn't going to step in for, for, for Gary Lineker. Um, Colin Murray, who presents a program, a live program on, um, on Five Live, which is the sort of the main sports radio station, along with TalkSport, the commercial one. Um, you know, he said he wasn't as well. So it was, it was incredible. It was just like Lineker must have been sitting there thinking, okay, I've worked with these people, but actually they're taking a stand. They're taking a stand because they respect him as a broadcaster. He's probably the best sports presenter in the country. But I think they also, I think some of them obviously respect his values, but I think also people have an element of sympathy for, in terms of what he said, when you look at how impartial are the BBC bosses at the top. So it's, it's a, the BBC could have handled this so much better. They could have nipped it in the bud very early on, but they have taken to a tiny barbecue with the, with the naivety of an arsonist and they're, and they're, they're going to get burnt. I mean, you know, a lot of people are turning on the BBC bosses and their meetings today. I mean, we're what, 8.15 in the morning UK time. Their meetings planned for today, Zoom calls with elements of management. I don't know if Tim Davey, the main sort of director general, the main guy will be, will be involved. But there's a lot of anger within the building. Yeah, there's probably some department in the BBC that trains crisis management. And they've, they've got a case study now, haven't they, themselves? Uh, an absolute masterclass in how to not manage a crisis. Um, you know, I think you've been, and you were alluding to it in your last answer, 
been really scathing of the top brass and in the BBC. How did how do you how did this even happen? You know, you know how was something that could have been sort of dealt with quite calmly and methodically? How how did it suddenly blow out of control like this in your mind? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think what it's highlighted is the you know there needs to be more communication between the bosses at the top and the people in the individual departments, particularly the sports departments. Um, I mean, talking to sort of staff members, they feel the bosses are out of touch. And I think if their bosses had been more in tune with the mood, more in tune with the fact that however many, was it 200 people work in, in BBC Sport? I'm not quite sure of the exact figure, that they are a team. And the bosses just thought, well, they'll all think individually. But it's not. It's sport. It's a collective. Um, they have respect and they, they stand up for each other. And they, I, I would, in a strange way, it's been the worst of times for the BBC because it shows the naivety and incompetence of the management and also the flaws in their impartiality and their in, inconsistency in their impartiality guidelines. But, it, but in a strange way, it's shown the best of the BBC that you have got a team within a corporation, which doesn't always happen. I can't imagine it always happens in business. So, uh, but yeah, it's basically they were out of touch and that's why they need to get on these Zoom calls today, show some contrition. I mean, the BBC is just, look, there are a lot of people in this country who want to bash the BBC um, for various reasons, whether it's political reasons, whether it's because they think that the, the licence fee, which is funded by the, the, the public taxpayer, um, not taxpayer, but the public, is, is too much. Um, so, and this is just an own goal. You know, this is, this is the BBC are taking a hammering from from all uh, quarters um, on on various elements of this debate. So yeah, it's it's very damaging. I would be surprised if anyone from of the bosses resigns because they're probably too arrogant um, to to believe they need to, um, and they will just carry on. But I would be surprised if Lineker doesn't turn out the winner in all this. He's already the winner already because if it doesn't work out, he can just say, well. And I've effectively been gagged by the BBC for a comment I made, which actually quite a few people agree with. I did agree with it, that some of the imagery, personally, um, on his own um, personal Twitter feed. He is not BBC staff. He's not full time at the BBC. He's effectively a freelance. So, yeah, I mean, they've got to sort their guidelines out and they've got to sort out their lines of communication with staff. Because of Gary Lineker's stature, Within the, the, within the presenting game now, I can remember actually his debut on Match of the Day when he took over from Desmond Lynham, and it was a bit of a shock at the time to to go from someone as kind of suave as Des to to Gary Lineker, but he, he really has grown into grown into that role. But presumably, Henry, he you know one of the other strengths is he could just get any job he likes, right? I mean, I know the BBC is the plum job because of historically the role um, that the BBC has. In, um, in, in, I suppose, in the in British society, and of course, probably in line with Gary's kind of broader views as well. Um, it's a good, good one to be work. It would be working for, but presumably he could just go and, you know, the the the, the job offers would be there uh, if he did decide to walk away. Oh, hugely, yeah, and probably for double the money. Yeah, he'd absolutely do that. And but but I think that's that's a point that's worth making. The fact that he could earn more money elsewhere shows his 
affection and in a way loyalty to the BBC. Plus also, as you say, the BBC, you know, in times of trouble, whether it's a royal death or in times of celebration, whether it's a, um, whatever it is, whether it's a, I think we're getting a, well, we've got a new king, there's gonna be a coronation. So people turn to the BBC. When it comes to big tournaments, okay, there's ITV, which is a very, um, very good uh, commercial offering. But when they go head to head with the BBC, the BBC tend to win. I think maybe because it's the first button on the dial, but also because I think there's a there's that familiarity. There's also that feeling of sort of authority, credibility, integrity, and that's slightly woven in with this now this huge issue of impartiality, impartiality at the top, impartiality in certain tweets. And if you go through the BBC guidelines, and I have to say it's about as exciting as going through the sort of the updated laws of the game on offside and about as confusing, it's quite a grey area because there is actually a sort of subsection which says that sports present, there's more latitude allowed for sports presenters than for a presenter of, of the news. So as ever with uh, the BBC, it's got its knickers in its twists and it's going to need a little bit of untangling. And Henry, as we said off the top of the show, it's, uh, it's uh, breakfast over in your part of the world. Um, I've got the various newspapers open in front of me. Uh, interesting to see that from your own uh, publication through to the Red Tops, uh, the story is still the, the, you know, alongside of the Oscars, the, the lead story, uh, but the BBC has, has dropped it down the priority list. Uh, it talks to uh, how the BBC managed to uh, shoot itself in the in in, in the foot uh, even further by making uh, probably uh, uh, over. Uh, the top um, editorial decisions in, in in leading their own bulletins consistently in, in, on the TV and the news uh, with with the story. So uh, I guess the the question is wh where are we now? Uh, we're we're seeing uh, headlines about a truce and uh, uh, and that uh, he will be back uh, by this weekend. Uh, is, is that what you're expecting? And is that what the jungle drums are suggesting uh, over uh, uh, in London? It, it makes sense for there to be a truce on, on all sides and then a proper look at the guidelines. Uh, also an appreciation show of contrition by Tim Davey at the top of the BBC for, for you know for, for some of his comments and particularly the lack of communication or, or this perception of him being out of touch with the, uh, with the, with the staff. Um, I mean, the, the BBC have got an extra element here in terms, they're actually there's a contractual issue that they've let down the Premier League by not showing highlights package that they had promised. Uh, there's, they're, they're now going into the FA Cup. So there's now this issue of, are they contractually letting down the Football Association, who own the FA Cup, have sponsors, uh, if their coverage is as diluted as the Premier League coverage on Match of the Day was. So I would imagine if the BBC have got any sense and their commercial department will be jumping up and down to try and alleviate this problem that they're going to have with the uh, the rights owners, i.e. the Premier League and the FA, uh, to get Lineker back on air as soon as possible. Mm. All right, Henry. Well, thanks for joining us. And um, as our listeners have quite obviously uh, uh, noticed the elephant in the room, the illegal migration bill is not something that we've chosen to, to wander into uh, for the purpose of this conversation. Obviously, we've all got our views and opinions on that and we'd be here uh, for the rest of the day if we were to talk about those. This is more a matter of uh, uh, somebody of, uh, of the stature of Gary Lineker and, and the broadcaster and, uh, and and all of the ripple effects that, that roll around that. Uh, yeah, I think you're right. We probably will see Gary back uh, and the ratings, uh, as you say, if 
they can pull uh, an extra three million when he's not there, just imagine what will happen when he does return. Yeah, I mean, look, great talking to you guys. So let's talk about some football next time because the actual stuff on the field is mm. the most. It's one of the craziest Premier League season I can remember. Tense, dramatic at the top, and even more tense and dramatic at the bottom. Well, I am surprised that Derek didn't get a question in about Arsenal, mate, but um, on that invitation, I'm sure he will take that opportunity next time we get you back to us. Those uh, very questions we've missed this time, mate. Pleasure. Henry Winter from The Times, always very generous uh, and uh, loquacious and uh, and really manages to, to tell the story in a, an interesting uh, uh, fashion so we can all understand it as well. Okay, stick around. After the break, World Cup corner. Box to box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Yes, this is Box to Box. Great chat with Henry Winter there on what is a very complex story. Been a great show so far too. Really enjoyed the Edge and Willem's chat with Joe Gauchi. He's a rising star, that young man. I'm sure we'll see a lot more of him, not only domestically, but around the world of football in years to come. But we are counting the moments down until the Women's World Cup and each week we're trying to bring you a few different stories. Uh, unfortunately, they seem to be political more often than not, Willem. Uh, um, yeah, we know what you we know what you're going to lead us with this week. Tell our listeners, mate. Yeah, it does continue the political theme, Rob. One that we've been following for a few weeks has reached its conclusion. Uh, French women's manager Corinne Diaka will not be at the World Cup. She's been uh, sacked. As we know, numerous players led by Wendy Renard uh, said they wouldn't be playing under her for the sake of their mental health. Uh, the FFF, French Football Federation, uh, put together a four-person committee that found a very significant divide between players had emerged and had reached a point of no return, which harms the interests of the team. Uh, as I said, Wendy Renard at the head of the mutiny. Uh, she's coming for criticism as well, hasn't been spared. The committee have said that uh, the expression of discontent via social media and the way they basically held the Federation to ransom uh, will not be acceptable in the future. Edge, uh, Diaka didn't go quietly. Uh, hasn't been overly successful as French uh, French manager. No, they didn't quite get the job done at the Euros last year. She uh, said she wouldn't be stepping aside. It had been a smear campaign, uh, etc. But in the end, the end result, uh, she will not be coming to Australia and New Zealand. That's right. It's got a, a lot of uh, Rick's a lot of similarity when uh, the same sort of thing happened in Australia, didn't it? Um, so, yeah. Look, I think there's a lesson out of this. Uh, all this sort of repeated type of incidences around international women's football means that uh, international women's football is different to men's football, and relationships uh, uh, are important, and sensitivities are obviously. A little greater um, than might what be in the men's game. So all of those uh, dynamics uh, play into a harmonious uh, working environment. And we all know in Australia, if you don't have a harmonious working environment uh, in international women's football, you don't, you're not successful. So you know it's taken the French Federation a long time to get to this position. They've also had other issues around uh, the status of women in the Federation more generally, which have played out over the last 12 months. So this is a bit of a reckoning for the French Football Federation. Um, we've seen uh, Australia didn't do so well uh, when it replaced its coach uh, ahead of um, the uh, World Cup in France. So we'll just uh, it remains to be seen what's going to happen with France, Derek, doesn't it? Whether this is just a huge disruption and whether this has totally derailed their campaign or they can get it back on track. Yeah, obviously it's... Um, also very similar kind of circumstances to Spain, who obviously were just over here for the um, Cup of Nations. And, of course, Spain are sticking 
uh, with their their manager. So it just goes to show that player power doesn't always uh, come up come out on top. Um, but yes, of course, we would always expect a bit of French chaos leading into a uh, leading into a World Cup. Um, but yeah, I'm just I'm just interested looking at the potential replacements, and one of which is uh, a favourite of the show, Herve Renard. Of course, we know him from, uh, you know, a, the Asian Confederation and some tussles with Saudi Arabia. Um, and, of course, he led them to the most recent Men's World Cup and that famous victory uh, over Argentina. Um, he's obviously got a storied international career, but no uh, women's football, as far as I can tell. Um, so I just wonder, Edge, in, in your experience, you know, is is there a difference, do you think? Do, do you think, because he's got a great international CV, albeit with kind of sort of lesser nations, you know, France is, a you know, one of the top top football nations in the female game. Is, it, is that the sort of CV you'd expect to see? And is it something that you think he can just jump straight straight from the men's game into the women's game? Well, we saw it with Ante Milicic, he did it, didn't he? And he really enjoyed it. So I can't... Um you know, disparage the fact that uh, someone's coming from the men's game into the women's game. Um, it, it really is up to that coach to make the transition and be aware of the nuances associated with international women's football and uh, really establish great relationships. You know, it's not an easy transition to make, um, but, you know, I don't see any reason why he can't be successful. I just think the the legacy of what's happened, though, might be just uh, too great to overcome some of these fractured relationships in the playing group. Um, there'll be people on both sides of the decision, whether they like it or don't like it. It's just going to be a heavily um, tense atmosphere, you would expect. Oh, look, I don't think they can recover from it. That's just my perspective. But, uh, you know, it's going to be fascinating to watch what plays out between now and uh, when they take their take the field in the first cup in the uh, uh, the Australian New Zealand Women's World Cup. The Federation might approach him. Would you like the job? Yes. Where is the mission? Oh, Australia. Oh, no, I'm not going back there. Who could forget uh, Michael and Rob that night against Saudi Arabia standing on the touchline the night Harry Sutar did his near comeback stadium? He was saturated, Herb Renard. He was soaked straight through the white shirt, pressed up against the chest. Uh, he might not be too keen if that's the, uh, his most recent memory of Australia. Yeah, he may not be, Willem, but um, I, I know Edge's comments uh, earlier on about Antonio Milicic, and while he did a a good and serviceable job uh, uh, when he took over from Alan Stajic after the the blow up all those well, now all those years ago. Uh, ultimately, it wasn't a success. Uh, they they didn't achieve the expectations that uh, that most uh, pundits had expected of them in France in 2019. And uh, you know the fallout of that took a long, long time to to resolve. And we're only just now still you know, hoping that Tony Gustafsson has, has got them back on track. So if you look at this French story, you look at the Spain story that Derek refers to, of course, there's the Canadian women who are blowing up and, and who we have in, in our final group match uh, in that critical game. Uh, you just have to ask the question, and I know we have asked it on the show before, uh, are some of these planets aligning for Australia to just sort of soften uh, the, the surroundings uh, around us? And, and this is all off the back of some of the stories that I heard you guys discuss on the show last week uh, uh, with uh, so many of our women doing so well. So uh, I don't know. I mean, uh, a little bit of schadenfreude doesn't go uh, um, unnoticed, Michael, when it comes to uh, uh, your own self-interest. I tend to agree, Rob. Um, the, you know, what's happened uh, with Canada might benefit Australia. We have to wait and see, uh, don't we? But um, we've seen just our own experience with the Matildas that uh, when these sort of big disruptions happen, changing coaches, relationships fractured, that 
you know, the outcomes don't uh, necessarily go that well on the pitch. So, yes, Rob, the planets might be aligning, as you suggest. It's uh, not long now. Okay, well, uh, Edge, um, I, I like the attitude that we've all sort of lined up on and, um, you know, whether Hervé Renard ends up at France or not, um, we, we'll find out in due course. Well done, gentlemen. Uh, Edge, you're going to take the pine for uh, stoppage time this week, mate. So uh, a couple of weeks before we see you back at home. Looking forward to it, mate. Yeah, looking forward to that, Rob, and have a good stoppage time. And uh, I'll be listening uh, when it breaks just to see what your uh, talking point of the week is, Rob. Yes, well, I hope it's half as entertaining as the episode I had the good, uh, the joy of listening to you with you guys having a bit of fun with uh, canned fish and uh, a couple of quirky stories. Well, and well done, you. Uh, we'll talk to you a bit later in the week. Thank you. No, I enjoyed the show. A couple of good interviews, I think, in there. So uh, hopefully the, uh, the listeners enjoyed. And yeah, catch you on Stoppage Time. And Derek, thank you again, mate. Uh, we'll, we'll probably, I'm not sure whether we'll be seeing you next week. Uh, there might be a new member of the household by the, the time uh, Stoppage Time rolls around uh, in, a, in, a, in a seven days' time. Yeah, we're all playing the wasting game at the moment, Rob. So, yeah, I'd say that there's a good chance I won't be here next week, but I'll send you all an update so uh, you can let all the listeners know what's happened. Excellent, mate. Well, good luck to you and Sarah and beautiful little Maeve uh, for uh, the imminent arrival, mate. Um, and uh, to Damo as well, mate, thank you for all of your excellent work. And make sure, please, uh, if uh, you haven't done it already, make sure you you like us on whatever uh, platform you tune into your podcast make sure you you know give us a, a lovely five star rating it does help it helps get the word out there and if you're enjoying the show then uh, we really do appreciate the the support you give us both uh, you know by tuning in every week and by making sure you give us a, a rating make sure that wherever you get those podcasts you do just that tweet us at box to box nts and follow us on twitter make sure you like us on facebook as well and join us throughout the week as our podcasts drop and we go from one end of the pitch to the other in the world game